Last week was Shavuos, and of course the major event of Shavuos is what's called the Kabbalah Satera, is uh, receiving the Torah at, at uh, Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai. That's obviously the main theme. That's obviously the main theme. But the question is, which is really a very important question, what is the greatness of Torah? Because we know that we received that on Har Sinai, and uh, there are many statements in Chazal that clearly indicate uh, the greatness of Torah. One of them. There's a Mishnah in Hurrius that says the following: <coughs> that a mamzer tamad chokham, um, a mamzer tamad chokham, that somebody who's an illegitimate child, a product of incest or whatever. Uh, and he, but he happens to be a great Talmud Chochem, is greater than a Kohen Gadol Amaretz. The Kohen Gadol, right, uh, who's, uh, who's an Amaretz, ignoramus. That's an astounding statement, you see, this whole concept. What does that mean? Could you imagine the Kohen Gadol is the one that goes into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. He's the one who goes into the Holy of Holies in the Temple, Beis HaMikdosh. And, um, and he's the only one. In fact, the place is so kodosh, it's so holy, that Malachim cannot go through that room. Now, if the Kohen Gadol himself is not Roy, then he will die if he goes into that room. So could you imagine the, the great spiritual leadership of the Kohen Gadol? Yet notwithstanding all that, if he is an Amoritz, then he, he does not have preference or kedima to a mamzer coin gadol, a mamzer tamat So even though somebody's an Ill, illegitimate child, but the fact that he's a tamat means that he surpasses the coin gadol in, in terms of kedima or preference. Now that's an incredible statement, as we see. Clearly, it's uh, clearly the, the the important differentiation here is the concept of Torah. Because the Mams is a Tamat Chochem, then he is greater than the Kohen Gadol who is an Amoritz. So the question we have to ask ourselves is why? How is it possible for this to be, where the Mams is a Tamat Chochem is greater than the Kohen Gadol? That automatically begins to tell you the whole concept of the greatness of Torah. Then, of course, we know the statement in Chazal, in the, the morning uh, chakras, Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam. That Torah is greater than all 160, all 613 mitzvahs combined. That's what we see. The question is, how is it possible for one mitzvah to be greater than all the other mitzvahs? How do we even understand that? You see, because we know there are many mitzvahs, now, obviously, the many mitzvahs that are great, we don't know the value of each mitzvah. But like it says in Perkyovis, you have to observe every mitzvah because you don't know which one is greater or not in terms of its reward capacity. However, we know among the mitzvahs is Shabbos. So what this is saying is that Talmud Torah is greater than Shabbos, and so on, greater than all the other mitzvahs. It says, Keneged Kulam. You see, it's not greater than any one, it is greater than all of them combined. Now that is an incredible statement. So again, we see that there's something about Torah which is incredibly great.
there's a hint. There is a Chazal that tells us that when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Shemayim, and the, uh, he was surrounded, so to speak, by the Malachim, and they said to him, wait a minute, why should you get the Torah, which means you and the Jewish people, we want the Torah. You see, this is what they said. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu said to them something which we know, all know is obvious, that obviously you're not physical, you're spiritual. So, for instance, you don't have possessions. There's no mitzvah of stealing. You don't have any possessions, you know? Keep it over aim. You don't have any mothers or fathers, so you can't do that mitzvah, and so on. So Moshe Rabbeinu said, look, you can't do this, obviously. So therefore the Torah, which obviously has physical mitzvahs, that only can come to we, the Jewish people who are obviously human beings, physical. physical. But the question that we have to ask is, didn't the Malachim know this? I mean, they know what's in the Torah. They know what's in the Torah. So the, then the question is, what's the Havamina? The question is, what is their uh, intent? How could they think that they could get the Torah? Because they know, obviously, they're not physical. They know that the commandments are physical, right? So then what are they talking about? What are they thinking when they talk to Moshe Rabbeinu? Because obviously Moshe Rabbeinu's answer was simple, was obvious. That is the question, you see. But the truth is, that Chazal, that talk about the Malachim, and Moshe Rabbeinu, the dialogue, you see, really expresses a profound secret. Because in some manner, they could accept the Torah. Obviously, we have to assume, you know, that they're not dreaming here that they really could accept the Torah. Except Moshe Rabbeinu showed them that even though they theoretically could accept the Torah, right, you can't because basically it's for people who are physical. You see. In any case, so we have to try to understand how could the Malachim accept the Torah? That is the question and so on, you know. And also what was Moshe Rabbeinu's statement to the Malachim? In any case, when we begin to look at all these chazals, we realize that the Torah itself, there's something about Torah which is not just quantitatively greater. There's a qualitative aspect. There's something about learning Torah, the Torah itself, that is much greater than all the mitzvahs, as I've shown you. The question is, how do we begin to understand this? Now, this is a very important idea, as you will see. And the reason for that is that, you know, Jews do mitzvahs, of course. But how many times does it happen that a Jew can go days, weeks, months, without learning any Torah? This, this happens all the time. You know, guy gets busy, he's got a job, he comes home, he has to, you know, he's got family, and so on. So an entire day goes by without learning any Torah. You see, so therefore what would seem very important is that a Jew should devote some time to Torah every day. That is what's very important. Because Torah is so great, 
See? So once you understand the greatness of Torah, why it supersedes in a certain sense, not, not removing, but it is uh, superior to all other mitzvahs, then that would be the outcome of this year. Is in some sense to devote a, a uh, let's say, a, a 30 minutes of Torah every day and not to forego that mitzvah of Talmud Torah. This is the object of the whole Shia, in a certain way to get everybody to learn Torah for at least 30 minutes a day, whatever it is, which I'll speak about. Okay, so the question then is, what exactly is it? Well, <clears throat> there are different levels of understanding of the greatness of Torah. The first level is the Medrash that says that that God looked into the Torah and he created the world. Now what that means is that the Torah is the architectural design plan of the entire creation. And God looked in it, so to speak, and from that plan he created everything. That's what it would mean. Now, that says to us something very important that somehow the document of Torah, okay, that the Torah itself includes every single thing that God ever created. And it's a lot of stuff. But somehow the Torah is a document, and that's what it is, that is the plan in the sense that it encompasses or describes or even names everything that God created. That's an unbelievable statement. You know, I mean, you think about it, if you go to a medical library, there are thousands and thousands of volumes, right, of incredibly intricate, you know, objects and ideas and events and so on. Yet some, and this is just medicine, yet the Torah contains all of it in it. As it says in Pirkeovich, you know, turn it over this way, turn it over that way, all of it is in the Torah. So the first thing that, so therefore, that's the first idea that we need to understand. That what Torah is, it is a blueprint of the entire creation, and therefore everything in creation is in some way included in the Torah, which means all objects, events, phenomenon, their phenomena, they're all in the Torah, you see. The question, of course, in this sense is, how can that possibly be? How can that be? Uh, because basically, the Torah has letters which form words, which form sentences and paragraphs and so on. So it only has a finite amount of letters. I think there's something like 300, 300 uh, and that's whatever, 30, 40, 50,000 letters in the Torah. So the question is, how can that amount of letters in the Torah encompass everything? You see, and then it says also, there, there are people who have worked on this, you know, that uh, there are 600,000 oisios in the Torah, corresponding to the 600,000 root souls of the Jews. Because we know that uh, there are root souls, which I uh, explained, uh, you know, before, in terms of Jews and non-Jews and so on. Uh, but in one sense, you have to remember that an ois itself can have a sub-ois. For instance, an aleph. We know how an aleph is written. So the top, it has a slant, and then on top is whatever, a dot, and then the bottom. So that slant is really a vav. 
and those two points are yuds. So in an aleph, in one letter, you have automatically three. You see, those are called sub-oisyos. You see, so perhaps if you combine all the sub-oisyos, right, that would equal to six hundred thousand. But then the question is, even six hundred thousand, how could six hundred thousand letters, right, even if it exists and so on, which Chazal say it does? Uh, how could that represent all information possible in the Bria? You know, how? Uh, and the idea to that is that in some way, I mean, only the Rebbeinu could write the Torah, you know. So how did he do it? Because it depends how you read it. We have the, the Aleph Beis as Aleph Beis Gimel Dalet. You see, and the Torah is written as Aleph Beis Gimel Dalet. See, I've got, that's what it's called, right? Which means that you can read the Torah, the narrative of the Torah, right? From the beginning, Bracious, all, all the way to the end, right? Israel. You see? You read it the normal way. But what happens if you take every letter in the Torah and substitute it for its reciprocal? What's the reciprocal of Aleph? Tough, right? What's the reciprocal of Bez? Shin. You see, that's called Tashrak. Tov Shin Reish Kuf, right? So what happens if you substituted every letter in the Torah, all 600,000 letters, right, for their, what's called their reciprocal, means the letter at the other end of the alphabet, which is in the exact same position from either end, right? How would it read? You know, we would look at it, it certainly wouldn't make sense to us, you know? You know, somehow there are words that it's like, you know, words that have no meaning to us. In fact, probably most of the Torah would have no meaning because we don't know what these words mean, right? But really, they represent objects, events, you see? Now, we can't read it. We can only read if the, 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 the narrative of the Torah uses letters that's Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Dalet. But if you substitute it, right, every reciprocal of that letter... Right? It would be a completely different Torah. Yet, all of those words have meanings. Isn't that interesting? You know? They all have meaning. In a certain sense, like picking up a book in Latin. You know? You read the book, right? It's Latin. You don't know what it means. You don't know the meaning of any of the words. But all the words do have meaning. Just in a foreign language. So, if that happened, if Tashrak, Tafshin, Reish Kuf substituted Avgad, Aleph Beis Gimel Dalet, right? To us, it would be like reading a book in Latin. You see? We have no idea what it means. But it's a, it would be a foreign language. But it does have meaning in terms of the reality that God created, which is called the creation. You see? So we have one way of reading the Torah, which is the way we read it, and therefore the words have meaning. And then there's another way to read the Torah in which the words don't have meaning, yet they do have meaning because they do represent true realities, objects, you know, uh, events, uh, phenomenon, phenomena, and so on. So that's a second way. A third way is called gematria. You add up the letters. Each letter has a numerical value. You add them up, right? And then if that has the same gematria, as some other word you see in the Torah, then that tells us a secret. You see, there is an equivalency here. 
It's a mathematical or numerical equivalency. So that tells us some type of fact. So you can do gematria either through Aleph Beis Gimel Dalet version of the Torah, or you could do gematria of the other version, the Tashrak, the reciprocal version, or gematrias. How many? How, how much? That that that's that that boggles the mind. How many gematrias there could be? Either way of reading the Torah, you see. So that's a third idea. I'm trying to show you now what's going on here. You know, maybe a, math, a mathematician can, uh, you know, figure out all the combinations and permutations. Then there's another way to do this, which is called Rosh Tevis, which is abbreviations, you see. The abbreviations, you know, where each letter of the word is really represents a sentence through the, 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 the letters itself. I'll give you an example. Somebody once went over to the Vilna Goyen, right? And he said, and, and there's another Chazal, by the way, that's really going to blow your mind in this sense, you know, that everything in the word bracious is included in the word bracious. Now, what do we have? Beis, Reish, Aleph, Shin, Yud, Tav. Six letters. But in some way, everything is in, is in the word bracious. Forget about the whole Torah. Let's say the 600,000 letters. It's all in the word bracious. You see? It's Chazal. I just want to mention, I once, many, many years ago, I once, uh, I, I was in a yeshiva, and there was a book. It was written by a, a Svardik Godel, you know. And that book had, I never found it again. I'm always curious. I never took down the name of the author or whatever. But that book was, it wasn't that large, but it had 1,000 Notorikans, which is abbreviations, just from the word bracious. It was astounding to read. I don't know how he figured out, but the word bracious, which is six letters, he was able to come up with everything, uh, 1,000 different ideas, mitzvahs and so on, just from the word bracious. So you can imagine if you do that bracious and from borrow and so on, it's almost infinite what you can come up with. I don't know how he figured it out, but it was just astounding to read. One example, so somebody came over to the Vilna Goyen, and he said to the Vilna Goyen, you know, you say that everything's included in the word bracious. Where's Pidgin Haben in bracious? He just picked out Pidgin Haben. What's Pidgin Haben? That you have to redeem a first male, right? Firstborn male child, you have to redeem him after 30 days. So you're Pidgin Haben, you redeem the child, you have to give money to the coin, and he gives it back to your child, or whatever, right? So that's a separate mission in the Torah, right? But if everything is in bracious, where is it? He asked the Vilna Goyen, you know? Now, if he asked anybody else, you just look with a dumb expression, right? But the Vilna Goyen, on the spot. It's just very simple. Bracious. Beis, Reish, Aleph, Shin, Yutov. Follow me. Ben Rishoin, the first child. Acha Shloishim Yoim, after 30 days. Tifte, redeem. Now, that is brilliant. That's what the Vilna Goyen said. So you see, uh, so he showed that the oisios, ben is a word, but these are abbreviations. That the bracious itself has incredible amount of yediois, facts, just from the, the fact that it's an abbreviation for something else. You see, you know. <clears throat> i give you one more example. Uh, in, the, in Truma it says, you know, v'osu migdosh. 
and they will make me a Migdash, the Shachanti and I will dwell in their midst. Okay? And this Gmatria, this, this Nurikan abbreviation comes from the Balaturim. But it's an awesome abbreviation. Right? I'm just showing you how this could work. See? So the Vishakanti and I shall dwell. Right? Now we know God dwelt in the base of Migdash. The first one was 410 years. And the second one was 420 years. Yes? That is alluded to as a, uh, in the word Vishokhanti, and I will dwell. Vishokhanti means I will dwell, right? But for how long? So the first base I make this is 410 years. The second base I make this is 420 years. Where do you see that in the word Vishokhanti, and I will dwell? You see? So the, the Balaturim says, it says the word Vishokhanti, and I will dwell. Really, it could have said Vishokhan, and he will dwell, right? So you have Vov, Vov, Vishokhan, right? Vishokhanti, uh, Vishokhan. You see, so the word, if it could say Vishokhan, so there are two letters which are superfluous. Tofyud, 410. Right? So the first place I make this is 410 years. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the word Vishokhanti, it also has the same. It has the letters of Vishaini and the second one in the word Vishokhanti. And the two letters that are superfluous is Tavchof, 420. It actually has Vishaini and the second, you see, 420. And this is the Balaturim, you know? And that's incredible. The key is not just to be dazzled by what the Balaturim said, which is dazzling, right? But the fact what he's pointing out that this is the ways of learning facts from the Torah. E- abbreviations, gematrias. You see? It's incredible. I and mean, we're looking at thousands, with, uh, hundreds of thousands of letters. Remember with the letters and the subletters and so on. Imagine applying all the Notoricans, you know, all the abbreviations and the gematrias, and the, then you could do it with the Torah being written in, in Tashrak and, and so on. The, the, the combination must be awesome. Right? It's, yeah. It's possible for people to dream up a lot of different things. How do you know you're correct? No, no, no. You don't know if you're correct. We don't know. But I'm just showing you how it's possible to get all the facts of this creation in the Torah. So it doesn't work the other way. I Meaning a person can take a word no, the and can... try to work out something. That... No, there's no proof for me in that sense, you know. But the fact that it can work shows you that this is a vehicle, this is a, a method of doing it. You see? Then there's what's called a skip sequence. What is that? And that, that's what the, the Torah codes, you're familiar with the, the, the whole Torah code phenomenon and so on, you know? So what that is, it's also an abbrevi- abbreviation, right? But it's not a straight abbreviation. In other words, the word bracious is an abbreviation of Pijan Haben, redeeming the firstborn. But then, who says you have to go in order? What happens if you skip? So that's the concept of a skip constant. You see? In other words, you start with a letter, then let's say you skip 500 words, or 500 letters, you take that 500th letter, then from there you skip 500 letters, 500 letters, and that forms a word. You see? In other words, it's abbreviation, but it's not 
in a, it's not in the sequence, right? Rather, it is a skip, constant sequence. Now, can we demonstrate? Probably the greatest sequence I've ever seen, and I hold this as an absolute proof that the Torah is written by God. You want to hear it? Um, somebody came over to Rav uh, uh, what, uh, Mechel Ber Weissmendel. He was a brilliant guy, tremendous mathematician, just naturally gifted. He, he knew seven, eight languages fluently, whatever. So somebody came over to him and said, you know, where is Megillah's Esther alluded to in the Torah? You know, I mean, Megillah's Esther was written 800 years after the Torah was given by God. That's how far, you know, it was written, you know, and so on. So we, we all know that well, if everything is alluded to in the Torah, doesn't make a difference when it, even events that happen in the future are alluded to in the Torah, right? Because the Torah includes not everything that is, was, and also will be. That's what it means, right? So uh, Rav Weissmendel told him, said, I figured it out. I mean, just, just listen to this, you know. One, you start from the first Aleph in the Torah, which is Bracious. Beis, Reish, Aleph, third letter. Right? And then you skip to get the next letter because it's going to be an abbreviation. You skip with the exact amount of letters in the Megillah's verse, uh, Esther. It's approximately, I don't know an exact number, it's 12,000, let's say 300 letters. That's the total length of letters in the Megillah. Okay? I mean, you can count them to check, you know. So if you start with the word Aleph, first Aleph in the Torah, then you count by the letters of the Megillah, right? 12,300, assuming that's the amount, whatever the amount is, right? You will come to a Samach. And if you count another 12,300, you'll come to a Tof. And another, a Reish. What does that spell out? Esther. But that's astounding. Because remember, the Torah has its own narrative. That means whoever gave the Torah, right? knew, one, that there would be a heroine called Esther, right? This happened 800 years later. And that, uh, that whoever did that gave the Torah, or not only knew that, but knew that she would write a Megillah, right? And that the Megillah would have these amount of letters. That's incredible. And at the same time, incorporate those letters, Esther, in the narrative itself. <laughs> that means you've got to pick a word that has that, the narrative, the word that has those letters as 12,300 letters sequenced, skipped, beyond belief. What's the probability that a guy could have done that by chance? Because either it was designed or it was done by chance. Unbelievable. Can't dispute that. So the, so the guy, so Rav Weissman told him, you know, and the guy was like stunned. Because Rav Weissmendel figured it out. How did he know? Whatever. Anyway, the guy said, that's good for Esther. What about Mordechai? <laughs> you know, he's really ambitious, right? You know, it's called getting greedy with Torah. So Rav Weissmendel told him, I don't know. I haven't figured out. But come back next year on Purim, and maybe with God's help, I'll figure it out. 
So the guy comes back next year on Purim, right? He says, well, you know, he told me to come back on Purim. You figure it out? Well, Weissman says, yes. Yes. This, right? What is that? So in Parshas Tetzaveh, which is what you read on Purim, I mean before Purim, right? It says, Modror. In fact, the, the Chazal tells us that Mordechai is Merumas, alluded to in that person. Anyway, if you count from the word Mem, Modror, right? Uh, whatever, they're talking about the uh, terrorists and so on, right? Whatever. Or the, anyway, you start from Mem, right? And you count how many letters? The exact amount of letters in the Megillah. Let's assume it's 12,300, right? You're going to come to Reish. Skip again, Talat. Again, Chof, again, Yud, Mordechai. That is beyond belief. So that's the same thing. Whoever gave the Torah had to know there would be an Esther and now a Mordechai, right? Not only that, but that they would be what? They would have written a Megillah that has these exact amount of letters. And he would still have to do that, maintaining <coughs> the narrative of whatever the Pesach is saying. Isn't the, the that to me, wait, to me, that is incredible. It is not humanly possible for somebody, obviously, that means whoever wrote it had to know the future. You know? In other words, that this should have occurred by chance is, uh, is impossible. So that is proof that the Torah includes everything. I mean, that, you know, even if it's in the future, in a way which is just absolutely uh, incredible. Anyway. The, uh, the Megillus Esther was given with Ruach HaKodesh. She was written, but... Uh, yeah, written oh yeah, Kodesh. sure. In the Megillus Esther, one of the things that Aish uses is using the same technique in Miguel's Esther to show the remez to the Nuremberg trials. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but I'm not going into that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, <clears throat> this is a calculation which is that could not have happened by chance. What is interesting is that so <clears throat> this guy who asked Rob Weissmendel, you know, he had said this over uh, at a Shabbos table. He, he had a woman as a guest who was completely. Uh, not religious, you know, and he told this over at the table over what Rav Weissmendel told him. So he told her at the table, you know. So this one happened. This woman happened to be a mathematician. <laughs> See, <clears throat> so the next day, you know, she comes to eat the meal, and she, he sees that this woman's eyes are red. And so he says, "What happened?" He says, "Well, I stayed up the whole night, you know, to calculate." The probability of what you told me, and, the, and and she said, it is not possible. I mean, the chance of this occurring, both of these by chance, is quadrillion to one. That, that, mean, that means you'd have to write the Torah quadrillion time, and only once would you have this probability. I mean, it's just beyond belief, you know. Anyway, so you know. Anyway, a couple of years later. He was at a wedding, and a woman comes over to him. And this woman then was religious, uh, not religious. He comes over, a woman, woman comes over to, to this man who had asked Ralph Weisband, well, do you remember me? So he said, no. He says, I'm the woman, the mathematician, that was in your, and she had a shaitel on, 
and she married a Bentura, and the guy in Koilil. I'm just saying that, you know, uh, it, it's just an astounding probability. But again, it illustrates that Notorican, which is abbreviations, right, which represents words, a letter represents the beginning of a word, right, can, uh, uh, Notorican can also have a Skipsky sequence, you see. And by the way, there's Russia Tavis and there's Surf Tavis, which means the last letter of every word can also be a gematria. In fact, you can use a gematria even in an Afghad, even if it's Allah Beis Gimel Dalad, you can work backwards. So there's, a, there's, a, there's abbreviations that work forward, right, like Breshis, and there's the abbreviations that work backwards, you know, Tof Yud Shin, you know, Aleph Reis Beis. It works both, both ways, and it both, works both ways. Skip. The amount of information you can get with all these ideas is almost infinite. And that's how the, the, Torah, the Torah works. We, of course, cannot read the Torah that way, but we had, there are a lot of, of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, rushes and so on, where Chazal, you, you know, do this all the time, safe tables. And then there's Emsa tables, but the same different skip sequences, and depends on which olive base you're using, you know, the normal and the reciprocal. That's how you can do it. So, therefore, the Torah, because you have to say how, or people say, what are you talking about? How can you have everything in the Torah, you know? But you can. Our problem is that we cannot do it except through even, we can barely do it through the normal letter sequence of olive base, gimel, dalit, and so on, you know? But, the Torah really does describe and every single thing ever created, which means even an object, it goes into the whole chemical structure, the atomic structure, everything, because it's all part of the creation. That's beyond belief. That's what it means, you know, turn it over this way, turn it over that way, it's all there. And guess what? You can imagine now what we're going to be doing in Oyelam Haba in the future world, right? right? We're going to learn this Minimally, but there's much more than that. But we're minimally how every single thing that exists in this creation is found in the oasis of the Torah. Very important idea. And by the way, once we know that, we know something else. And that is why if one letter in the Torah is missing, then the Sefer Torah is basically puzzled. But why? One letter? Out of the hundreds of thousands of letters, one letter is missing? Yes. Because if the document really is a document that has everything in it, guess what? If one letter is missing, then there's a whole bunch of stuff that's missing. So that document is not everything. So it's possible. You see? So we actually understand the halacha of why it's possible, you know, if one letter is missing. Because like I said, because then it wouldn't be a document that reflects or describes everything that God ever created. Can't be. And it's possible. See, so that halacha flows from that concept that we now know. You see. <clears throat> but I want you, you have to understand one thing, which many people don't realize. God does what he does. We do know that he, cre he, that he created a creation, which is our entire creation. <clears throat> Physical universe, spiritual universe, we know that. Okay. But the question is, 
And that universe or that creation that he did is in the Torah. Okay? But the question is, is this all that God ever did? We don't know. It is possible. And it, it, in other words, what I'm saying is that the Torah is only a document about this set of acts that God did. It's called the creation. But it's possible, and God never informed us, that he would have created an infinite amount of other universes. Well, actually, it's creations, right? He could have created an infinite amount of other creations, each creation never duplicating anything in any other creation. Why not? See, we don't realize the power of the Rabbanu Islam. It's not that he's omnipotent, you know? We don't really know what he does. Because he, he, I'm sure he's done, he could create another creation that has other people, if you want to use that word, right? Other people, and they have their own Torah that describes their creation, not ours. You see? So God could create an infinite amount of creations. Each creation not having anything in any of the other creations. Did you imagine that? And each creation having their own document, if that's what exists in that creation, describing that creation. That is the power of God. So it's beyond our ability to understand what God can do. But it's very possible, you know? And God never told us about anything else, you see? Because the problem is that the Torah is only a document or the architectural plans of this creation, not of any other. You see. No, 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 so you could you imagine an infinite amount of creations, no creation ever having anything in any of the other creations. What does that tell us about God? What his power is. I mean, what his power is. But we don't understand, you see. And the second thing is this, which you have to appreciate, you know, is that when an artist draws a painting, where's he getting his stuff from? He can only get the stuff from his experience, right? He has experienced life, whatever that is, and he can put that in a painting. But what an artist has never experienced, he can't put into a painting. He has never experienced it. Yes? You agree to that? Okay. The amazing thing is that God has never experienced, in a certain sense, making a creation. So how did he come up with all these ideas? Think about that. That means to create the human body, 100 trillion cells. And there's 100, right? And there's, uh, there's uh, uh, well, uh, yeah. And not only that, but to create the heart and the organs and the brain. Where did he get it from? He doesn't have experience with this. It's not like that God is a neurosurgeon, you see? And therefore, he now can create something that has a brain. There's no such thing as a brain. There's, in fact, there's no such thing as anything in creation. God had to generate this from his own creative ability, you see? That's beyond anything we can understand. So it's not just the power of God that is absolutely awesome, you see, what he could do, but it's also the creative ability 
to create something from nothing, from no prior experience at all. And we're not talking about creating something from one experience, right? We're taking, we're talking about creating the entire creation without any previous experience, so to speak, right? And there's almost an infinite amount of different things in this world. Yet it all comes from no prior experience. You see? And not only is it no prior experience, but, it, but the way the world integrates with each other is beyond belief. <coughs> you look at any organism, how everything fits exactly. You know, it's, it's anatomy, it's physiology, you see? And also the atoms. You know, I mean, just be. You can begin to realize what you can create. Imagine this world only has 92 natural elements. That's it. The entire creation, or I should say, the entire physical creation, the universe, is nothing more than different combinations of 92 substances. How's that possible? You know, I'm not talking about the the uh, the uh, man-made stuff, because they don't really exist in nature and so on. But there are 92 natural elements, yet God can create an entire physical universe, which is incredible, and everything in it from 92 things. It's even more fundamental than that, because all those 92 things are just different configurations of the different electrons. Three elements. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I don't want to go below the 92, because then you... You, then you're looking at, uh, you know, the uh, quarks and all that stuff. But could you imagine creating everything just from 92 elements, 92 substances? So if that's the case, could you imagine what God can do? He can have some other 92 elements or whatever the 92 is, you know, and create an entire creation because you think about that, all it requires is 92 different substances to do the entire physical universe. That's incredible. Now you think, well, to make a, to make a universe physical universe, you need hundreds of trillions of different substances. No, you just need 92. Simple, you know? Yet he can do it. We can't even begin to think of how to do that, you know? And so on, you know? That you begin to understand the awesomeness of his power, of his creativity, you know, and how he could combine things to make different compounds and different substances and so on, different molecules. And all it is is 92, uh, what do you call it, uh, 92 elements and so on. Anyway, uh, so therefore, I, I'm trying to illustrate how the Torah can have everything in it. And we now see that, why not? That's the Torah that we have. It is an unbelievable document of everything that exists. Our problem is we can't read most of it. That's why most of it is concealed, you see. Because the Torah describes not just the physical universe, it describes all the spiritual universes, you see. It describes Oilam Habo and so on. In other words, everything that we can conceive of, it describes. If we cannot conceive of it, it doesn't describe because it was never created. So the Torah has also everything about Olam Habba. It's all there. We just have to figure it out, you know, where is it and how to read it. You see? This is the uh, incredible idea about what the uh, Torah is, you know. But that's the first level. But that's the first level of understanding of the Torah. You see? That's level one. Why the Torah is so great.
and so on. But there's, the, the, but there's a second level of why the Torah is so great, you see. There's a certain amount of actions that God did. Now let's look at his actions. There's a certain amount of actions that God did. These are the acts of God. What that means is that the acts of God, how does God do acts? Well, there's God and then there's his actions. The way he does actions, in other words, the way he actually implements and does things, is through what's called the ten spheres. There are ten spiritual forces of which we have no idea of their nature, and so on. You have Kesser, Chochmah, Bino, you have Chesed, Vur, and Tferes, Netzach, Hoid, Yesoid, and Malchus. Ten. And they themselves have, uh, they themselves are broken down into ten. For instance, you have Chesed, let's say as a Sphira, which is number four, but Chesed itself has also the ten. So you have Chesed of Chesed, you see. And then that Chesed itself has ten. In other words, it's not just ten, but each one is further subdivided into ten. Ten within ten within ten within ten. So they all subdivide, you see. And what God does is with these ten spheres and all their subdivisions and subdivisions and so on, He creates everything. Everything that exists is nothing more than a sphere or a combination of spheres that create reality. You see, they create reality. So we have the actions of God, we have the specific sphere combination that he used. Okay. But is there a name for this? Is there a name for this? So the truth is, what we now understand, we see, and that's a further understanding of the greatness of the Torah and so on, is that every letter in the Torah is the label or the name of a specific sphere combination that God used to do the action. Every action of God has a name that refers to Him doing that action. You see, for instance, if God is a Rahman, if He's compassionate, right? So the word Rahman is a name of God insofar as He acts with Rahmanus, compassion or mercy, and so on. Therefore, all the acts of God, every one of them, is really a specific combination of these ten energies, spiritual energies. And each of these spiritual energies has a name, you see. Is there a place that I can actually see the name of the spheres that describe his actions? And the answer is yes, that's the Torah. What, the, what you're really looking at, which is very interesting, when you look at the Torah and you read the words, what you're really reading, if you get away from the narrative, what you're really reading is the exact combination of spheres, or the exact type of combination of spheres that created something. That, what that means is that all the words of the Torah, right, if you take away the narrative, all the words of the Torah at, 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 at this level is you're reading spheres, cold spheres, 
Each letter represents a sphere or a sphere combination, and the total word represents the creation of the object. And sometimes even the letter itself represents the creation of the object. You know what's a good example? A digital code. You know, there's different levels of the language, you know. You know, there's certain computer languages that you can actually use the word English. But what that, uh, that and that language can, you know, uh, program. But then, the, but, but English doesn't talk to the computer, or the computer doesn't know English. But the English language really, in many ways, represents, or has, its, has things which represent it, which are what's called machine code. You see, it's the language of the machine, and it has been put a layer on top of that, English. You see, so we can program in English, but really, who's a programmer here? Am I right? Okay. Well, what you really do, I think assembly language is machine language. Am I right? Yeah. In other words, from what I remember. Anyway, in other words, there's a language that we use because we understand this language, you know, and so on. But the machine doesn't know English. So what English is nothing more than a representation of a machine code, which talks to it in digits, zero and ones. And then the machine can do the zero and ones, however, right? So what you're looking at is different languages. You see, you're looking at the language we use, then you're looking at the representation language that the machine uses. You see? The same thing. The language of the Torah is English in that sense. You see? It's our language, <coughs> it's Hebrew. But the real language or the machine language is spheres. You see? Which is incredible. That means that every action that God ever did in all the different ways of figuring it out, you know, uh, Asha, you know, Avgad, Tashrak, and so on. All of them, on our level, is a narrative. On God's level, it's a machine language in the sense that it's all spheres. It was, you could take the entire narrative of the Torah and turn it into spheres. It's astounding. Turn it into spheres, which each letter is a sphere combination, each word, right? And its combinations going different ways. Aleph, Beis, Gimel, Dalet. Tov Shin Reish Kuf, you see, with the Notorikans, the Gematrius, and so on, you know, it's all machine language. Now you understand what the Ramban means. When the Ramban says that Kol HaTorah Sheimoisov Shalakodesborchu, the entire Torah is nothing more than the names of God. You say, what do you mean, names of God? How can that be? You know, the word of, let's say, the word, uh, you know, Vayomer. Uh, you know, Vayomer means that he said. But really, Vayomer is a combination of spheres that represent an action that God did. So we cannot read Vayomer at that level. We can only read it at the level of language. You see? But really, every word in the Torah, or every different way of reading the Torah, which I mentioned and so on, can be read as a machine language, so to speak, or as a spheral language. That means every action that God ever did in creation, Right, is represented by the Torah in terms of the sphere language, not merely the, uh, uh, the natural language or the spoken language. You understand what I'm saying? That, that's beyond, and that's what, the Ram, wait, that's what the Ramban means, which is incredible <coughs> secret, that the Torah is really not the language that we use, but at the language of the spheres, it's just spheres. You know, you ever, you ever look at code of computer code you know, not in English, it looks gibberish. You know, it's like all signs and symbols, you know. 
Imagine you have the Torah written that way with signs and symbols, no more language that we know, right? Signs and symbols going backwards and forwards and abbreviations and gematrias and every other way and so on, right? With subvoices, you know, right? And all you're reading there is like, you're reading like, what, uh, like uh, what do you call it? Um, a machine language, digi- digital uh, code, I think that's what they call it, right? And so on. That's astounding. And then if you read it that way, you understand how God created everything. Isn't that amazing? Because that's the original code. That's the original language that, or, or, or phenomenon, phenomena that God used to create everything. Therefore, the Torah is nothing more than the names of God, which means it's nothing more than the actions of God insofar as he's doing that action. That is a sphere code, you see. And that is beyond, beyond that. But when you really think about that, now you understand what the Malachim wanted. The Malachim wanted to read Torah at the sphere code. And therefore you don't need the mitzvahs. You see? You got it? Because each mitzvah is a giloi. Every mitzvah is a revelation of some aspect of God. You see? So we get that by reading the upper code, the language, you know, the normal uh, language, right? Malachim don't have to do that. They said, we don't have to do that. Give us the language of the Torah in its original digital code called the sphere code, and we want to see the revelations of God in that code. See, they were right. Sure they were right. Because the question is, what are they talking about? It's all physical acts, the mitzvahs and so on. But they said, you're right on your level. But at our level, we want to read the digital code. We want to read the sphere code. You see? Which they can. Because every mitzvah, the way it's written, is a sphere code. You see? That refers to some act of God. And there's no reason why. Why do they want to read that? Because everybody, except unfortunately people, realize that the totality of all creation is an understanding of who God is. That's what it is. And every single ois, every single mitzvah, is another revelation of some aspect of God's actions. And that's the way we can understand God, you see. And that's what's going to happen in the future world, right? We're not going to have only the narrative. We're going to have the spheral language, you see, that's going to reveal much closer to what God did. And that's pure Kabbalistic language. You want, you can call it the Kabbalistic language. You see? That, that, you know, the, so the Torah really has two languages. It has the upper language, the narrative that we can read, right? And all the different forms and the ways of, you know, manipulating the Torah, right? But all of that can be now reduced, you know, not reduced, but translated or transformed into the sphere language. And that language is much closer. That's Kabbalistic. You see, when you understand not only the physical idea, but you understand physically what that has to do with Kabbalah, how all the mitzvahs are rooted into the entire creation Kabbalistically. In other words, when you put on tefillin, what's happening Kabbalistically? What's happening up in the world, you know, in Atsilus and so on? And how does it do the tikkun, the rectification and so on? You see, so if you understand that language, believe it or not, you don't even have to do the mitzvah. Really. You just read the Torah at that level. You see, in fact, 
why do we do mitzvahs? Because when we do a mitzvah, in the future world, it will reveal the sphere code. That's what it does. You see? It reveals the sphere code. Wasn't that in that, you know, there's a mitzvah, let's say, uh, keeping Shabbos, right? Right? Or the Molochas or whatever, right? And what that, re- if you do it here in Oilam Habo, what is revealed to you is the sphere code of observing Shabbos. You see? And that's the reward of the mitzvah. That's what it means, Cha mitzvah, you know, is a mitzvah. What do you mean, Cha mitzvah, mitzvah? Because the reward of the mitzvah, the physical mitzvah, is the mitzvah in its sphere code. You see? And when you have that, you know, it's, <laughs> then you, you, you understand the premise of the Bria, which is nothing more than some aspect of God. You see how it works? You see what's going on? What? Ah, so the question is, if the Malachim can figure it out. So what they wanted basically is to bypass the mitzvah. You see? We want to bypass the mitzvah. We get to the real, real ideas. How? By going to the sphere code, which they could do because they're, 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 they're uh, spiritual. So then why did Moshe Rabbeinu say no way? Because Moshe Rabbeinu was right. He said, you got a point. You can do it that way. But we know that God says, the only way I will reveal anything to you is you earn it. you got to do it. That's the concept of Namadik Sufa. In other words, in order to remove the bread of shame, in order to remove the fact that you're getting something for nothing, you can't get it for nothing. You actually have to do a physical act. And the reward of that is to read the code at the level of the spheres. You see? And then you won't have Namadik Sufa, you won't have bread of shame, because you will have earned the right to read it at that level. If not, you're going to have sh- bread of shame, which means you're going to be embarrassed by the fact that you didn't do a thing to deserve reading the Sphere Code. See? So he said to the Malachim, what's going to help you? As it is, you have Namadik Sufa, you have bread of shame, because they didn't do anything to earn anything. So if you get down straight to the bottom and read the Sphere Code, what will you have, what will you have what in Yiddish Fadin, what will you have benefited? Nothing. That's why in order to really, you have to remove the Namdik Sufa. You have to remove that fact that you are getting something for nothing. So you have to actually do something, which is the mitzvahs. And once you get the Sephira Code doing that, then you can enjoy whatever the mitzvah is without having this incredible, shameful feeling that you're getting something for nothing. You see how it works? So they were both right. <coughs> you see? But it's a very important understanding that the whole Torah is nothing more than names of God insofar as he does a certain action. So the Torah is the totality of all the actions of God and therefore all the actions have names, you see? But they have names at what level? At the level we could read, which is natural language, and then at the level of what the, what the words are really in terms of this sphere code, the actual spiritual forces that create everything that's part of God's action. You see? So that's what the dialogue between the Malachim. So that Chazal is a critical secret of what the Torah really is. You see? That if you read the Torah at the level of sphere, right? That is Oilam Habo. Because that's really where the real depth of the Torah is. That's the, what's called the Orishim. Actually, the Orishim the, is, the, is the, um, uh, the, the, the first light. It's the Messianic light. You see? 
in the, in the future we will have that messianic light. What is that? It's somehow understanding God at the level of the spheres, not at the level of the mitzvahs, you see. And the giluyim, the revelations of that, is beyond comprehension. And that's what it means, kimola or it's deo. And the world will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the seabed, right? What that means is that that's obviously not a normal knowledge. That's not normal. What do you mean the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God like the waters cover the seabed? What knowledge of God? You know, we already have. Bavli, Yushalmi, you see? But that's all at the normal level of language, you see? But when it means filled with the knowledge of God, it will mean at the sphere level. That's the beginning. And even that's nothing compared to what Oilam Habo is, you see? So you now understand the secret, right? Of what the Messianic light is, you understand the whole concept of what ultimately Oilam Habo, you understand the dialogue between Moshe and the Malachim. You see what's going on here, you see? And that ultimately, that is the greatness of Torah. However, there's a greatness of Torah which I have not reached, when I'm going to cut out now, which I will continue next week, which is what, you know, as I've described, two levels of greatness. One is the greatness of the level of Torah into what it is, the document that describes everything. And the second thing is that it describes the severe code of everything that is, you see? And that is uh, beyond belief. And even, even the Malachim wanted that. I want to tell you something. If they wanted something, it's got to be pretty heavy stuff. That's guaranteed. And they could have had it, except what God wants is to earn that sphere code revelation via doing an act, thereby earning it, and therefore not having the whole concept of greater shame, not feeling inferior and shameful because you did nothing to deserve what you're receiving, you see? And that was Moshe Rabbeinu. You guys have... Well, it involves Bechira. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu said. You, got, you guys have fathers and mothers, you know? So the, the, what he really meant is that, hey, if the Bershom gave the Torah in the form of the language narrative, well, then obviously, you know, you're not going to benefit by reading the Sphira. I mean, you'll know, you'll have greater insights, that's true, but you're going to have this Namlik Sufa, and that's not the, the whole point is to remove as I gave a Shia many, a long time, you've got to look up that Shia now, and so on, you know. Uh, but uh, this is basically what the dialogue is. But next week I want to go into what the, what the real greatness of Torah is in terms of its power. Any questions? Two questions. Two questions. The first Lucas, Lucas, yes. Marcia yeah. smashed. Yeah. Was that uh, Was that well? Yes, the God? first Lucas that he smashed was the Orishan. Okay. And the second question. Could you imagine what we lost? I don't know. We got the Shvarim. What? We got the Shvarim. Yeah, I'll talk about that next week. What what the Shvarim represent? Go ahead. And the second question, just to carry your thought that whatever God created is a combination of spheres. So is a person, you, me, them, spheres. are they combinations of spheres? Of course. Not only that, every atom in your body is a combination of spheres. Because how would it exist? So when they say everybody got a letter in their Torah, that letter is a combination of spheres. Which he is. Exactly. That's what it means. That's why all 600,000 roots have to, of the shamas, whatever, have to have a letter in the Torah because that letter in the Torah 
is what creates them, generates them. Let's see. Yes. And no two people are the same. No two people are the same. And that's what Chazal mean, by the way. It says, just like no two faces are exactly the same, therefore no two das, you know, uh, ideas and good ways of thinking are the same. You know, think about that. There's seven and a half billion people on the world, right? Currently. Did you, what? Currently. Currently, yeah, right? Yeah. Did you ever meet anybody where the two faces were identical? It's the same thing. So remember I told you, how does God take 92 things and create the whole, make the, the whole physical universe, right? How does he do it? Well, forget about the 92 elements. You had seven and a half billion people around, and no two people are exact. No two people. Yeah. Because, it's, and, and, and you think about that, and think about that, when you look at a face, I mean, how many things are on there? You know, you got the forehead, you know, the eyebrows, the, the, you know. I mean, you got stuff there, but come on, what is it, like 10, 15 different features? You know, even identical twins. They're also not perfect, not exactly. Perfect, you know, and so on. So it's amazing. How do you make seven and a half billion different versions of a face <laughs> using only a certain amount of components? I mean, how many components are there? You know, no, you know, in police, no if you they, when they give the when they make either. a composite in police, you know, of a criminal, you know, then they they have this uh, computer and they say, okay, how big was his forehead? You know, <laughs> right? You know, so you know, so they they infinite combinations of that, you know. You make the fire bigger, smaller, wide, how the measurement, you know. And then the nose is a protrude, it's a small, the mouth is how wide is it? Does he have a mustache? I mean it's you know, I mean, how much how much is in the face, right? Yet uh, yet there are enough components in a face where no two people will have seven and a half or so over seven and a half billion will have the same face. Isn't that amazing? That's what God can do. Okay. But this understanding, yeah, God, yeah. could you could you just put a, a regular office? Could you, in principle, could I say, Torah, could you bring rice chadron? That's how does that mean? How does that work? I'm going to speak about that next week. So it has to be because it's already 11:52. Because what was it? It's a separate. A regular office? No, no, no. There is no regular office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Earlier you had said that the Mamzer Tamar Chacham is bigger it's than greater the Lima. Uh, yeah. Didn't you explain the opposite, how the Maisa Mitzvahs are bigger than the, than the Lima? I'm not getting the question. You said the Malachim have the Lima of the Torah. No, they don't have anything. They wanted the Torah at the level of the spheres. So isn't that... And Moshe said, "Bad, back. You have to do the mitzvahs together." So, isn't that kind of represent the mitzvahs more than the Hamadatim? No, no. But I, I'm talking about the greatness of Torah, right? I'm talking about the mitzvah called Limanatera. That that mitzvah will make you greater than a coin gadol. Why? And like I'm saying, I'm uh, introduced two fundamental ideas. One is that it represents all of reality, right? And the second thing is that it has a second language underneath it that represents all of reality much closer to the actions of God because they are the names that we refer to by God in terms of creating everything. You're saying how the, but when we do, when we put on film, we're activating all that... All that spherus to open up. So the kind God has mitzvahs that nobody else has. So that, activating things... No, no, that's a different question. What about, we don't have all the mitzvahs. If you're, if you're not a coin, then what do you do? Right? You're not a lady. I mean, everybody, but, the, but that goes down to a different concept called the uh, unity of the Jewish people. That there's only one neshama. So if somebody does a mitzvah, in some way it affects your neshama, 
You know, if a coin eats truma, you can't eat truma, right? If he eats truma, somehow you benefit. You can open up the sphere of truma because he ate it. That's where the, the unity of all souls. It's a different. Yeah. So just the tamachacham is more plugged in the Torah than the Gemara. That's what you're saying. Tamachacham is directly plugged into the spheres itself at the second level. Then there's the first level. But he's, he, he's really plugged into the second level where he's opening up all kinds of spheres. It's like the computer using the machine language to do the work. So you see, so even though you do the physical mitzvah, what you're really doing is the sphere uh, actions. You're opening up spheres that you will get in Olam Habo. But you're still saying he's doing it differently than the Marwachim would have done it. They, they just, yeah, well, they, just, they would have gotten the insight, that's all. But they would not have opened, if they would have gotten it, but they didn't get it, you see, that's the whole point. They didn't get it, so they can't open anything. You see? Okay. See, you know, in the Mahabha, all the Malachim are going to be your Talmidim. They're going to sit in your shear because they don't have it. You have it, not them. You see? So Torah is given to man, you see, not to Malachim. So therefore, they don't have the, they don't have the knowledge of the Torah at that level. You know what I'm saying? I mean, maybe some, maybe a, some ideas, but basically, you know, they're going to have to sit, you're going to have to give a shear in Olam Habo, and there'll be a whole millions of malachim sitting there trying to figure out what you're talking about. Because you're the only one that has the insight because you needed to do a physical act to open up that sphere and for that language to be accessed. You see? It's not bad to know you can be a famous person in Olam Habo. When you say Torah, you mean Tanakh anyway, and Talmud also? No, I only mean the Chamisha Chumshet Torah. That's it. Although, although the truth is, it's also Nach. But the, Torah, the document of Torah is the entire Bria. Nach is not. So when you learn Gemara, what are you doing? No, you're learning Torah. But you said Torah. What? You yeah. said just the books. So what are you, what are you doing? You know, no, 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 no. Torah Shabbat Peh is part of Torah Shabbat Sal. It has, you know, the really one so why thing. why would Nach be excluded from that? Because Nach is basically a narrative. We messed up the documents that has all the breathing. What is the Torah? If you know the Syrian language that you don't really need to do the mitzvah. Well, that's what the Malachim wanted. Basically, to, to know. Jewish the, to, what was that? Jewish way out. Yeah. But then. It's called, it's called, it's called a loophole. Do <laughs> we have a tax loophole? Well, the Malachim wanted a Torah loophole. How do we get to the goods? Without having to go with you, you know, and so on, yeah. You said to study, uh, learn half hour. You picked a half hour. So therefore, wait, 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 wait. Thank you for reminding me. Therefore, I mean, I'll say it again. Everybody who's listening to this year, remember, if you learn Torah, you will be accessing the greatest possible mitzvah because it is everything that was ever created and you're opening up all the spheres, you see? And, and so if you do an individual mitzvah, you're not, as I will explain next week. But when you learn Torah, you're opening up all the spheres, as I will explain next week and so on. So everybody really should, every day you should learn at least one half hour. If you're a man, learn any Torah, right? Uh, and, and so on, you know, halacha, uh, gemara, it's all Torah. If you're a woman, Say Tillam, because it's also Torah and so on, you know. Uh, say Tillam, or learn Perkei or learn... 
you know, if you can, learn some real, you know, some Ashkafas from and so on, you know. They can learn any halacha that's no get to What? They can learn any halacha that's no get to Yeah, yeah. But anyway, but if a person was smart, he would learn every day at least just 30 minutes, that's it. At least he would have grabbed the greatest mitzvah that does the greatest tikkun, as I will show you next week. Why not? It beats everything else. Yeah. Because say not to go three days without learning Torah. That's why they read the Torah, Shabbos and Tuesday. And That's Thursday. right, yeah. Okay, what's the thing with don't go three days without it? Next week, not now. Next I'm out. Week? Okay. We'll wait for a few days. Or tomorrow, if you want. We'll wait for 45 seconds. Yeah. So it comes down. Anyway. The Nevi'im, Hashem could have just open their minds to the Torah of course. which tells the future well that, that would have been Kabbalah's Torah for the Malach but he didn't do it that's no, what Moshe Rabbeinu said that's not the point and Hashem tells another what's going to be in the future he could really just open up his mind to the Torah code yeah. there's another avenue how to do it that's right